Would you pray with me? And gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we open your word, and as we do so, we realize that we are opening more than just your word. We are opening up the word of life, and we are opening up a window to heaven. Seeing your creation in a way that we will not see in any other way. Lord, we confess we live lives uh, in a a world uh, so myopic it can only see itself. I pray that in our worship, even as we have given ourselves to you, that we might be able to see our world as you have created, as you see it. And then, Lord, that we might see you as well, and that in seeing you, we might give ourselves to you wholly and completely to you and to to your bidding and to the claim that you have on our lives. So use us in this moment here now to to move our hearts in your direction. And this I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, good morning once again. This morning I'd like to invite you to join with me in what may seem to be an odd journey, one that's going to take us uh, over these months all the way to Christmas. Now, I, I, I really don't want to cause a panic. Uh, you still have some time, what, what, 114 shopping days till Christmas, so you're, you're okay for right now. It's just that in, in planning for preaching in this fall, I, I really decided to follow a general outline that, that often is used in the liturgical year, which is practiced by the church actually worldwide and has been for years. Uh, where the calendar is divided up within the Bible. Uh, The period between Christmas and Easter focuses on the teaching from the Gospels and the life of Jesus Christ. And then from Easter uh, 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 through the summer, uh, the focus then turns to the New Testament and the epistles and, and our lives as believers and then in the fall, uh, that the cycle then goes to the Old Testament. And that the focus of teaching then in the liturgical year is that the Old Testament lessons prepare us then to welcome Christ, the newborn king, at Christmas. It's a powerful cycle that revolves around the year. And so in turning to the Old Testament for this fall, uh, I thought, how should I go about doing it? And I finally decided that it would be helpful to dip into what we, we find actually described in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 1, dipping into the lives of those who make up the cloud of witnesses, the role models that are found in the Old Testament, people who have defined faith. Now, that, that is one of the reasons why God includes the snapshots of so many people in his book. He wants us to see his truth reflected in all of these various lives. I mean, the the, 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 the arrangement is spectacular over the entire spectrum of humanity. And, and he wants us to see his truth reflected in their lives, even in the most obscure lives that exist. And what we see in them is really designed to help us then identify our own place in, in, in among his people as the children of God. So over the next 14 weeks, we will... Uh, see some who are very obvious heroes, like the one we will look at today, Joshua himself. We will then also look at some of the who are a little bit more obscure, uh, names that you may not have heard of or may have heard of in strange contexts, names like Jehoshaphat and Othniel and 
mean, guys like that, you wonder, who are they? But as we do, we may find ourselves smiling, we may find ourselves frowning, we might find ourselves actually sighing and feeling the sting of the consequences of sin or rejoicing in the victories of faith, simply because in seeing them we will see ourselves almost like mirrors and see ourselves in a new light. And that is really part of God's plan. You see, as a faithful Heavenly Father, He has preserved each life in His Word as a still portrait for us on our examination. And so I'm going to encourage you to join with me in studying them very carefully and finding insights that will help open up new doors of understanding that will help you also deepen your appreciation for the wonderful gift that will come at Christmas as Jesus is born. Now, having decided to focus on the Old Testament lives this fall, I thought it might be nice to begin where we actually left off in June as we ended our study in the life of in betwixt and between, as you may remember it. And we ended up in the book of Numbers where the children of Israel found themselves standing on the edge of the promised land. Uh, They were ready uh, 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 for a a whole new uh, start uh, they, were, they were about to ready to roll. And so this morning, I want to look at the leader who would then take that story of the Bible to a whole new level. He was a leader who was so significant that the very first book of the Bible that is named after a single person would be his, and that's Joshua. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn there to the book of Joshua with me. And I want your patience as well, because in introducing this whole new series, I have to set up some frames of it. That's the problem of starting a series. Now, scholars generally agree that Exodus took place somewhere around 1280 B.C., which means that when we open to the book of Joshua, we find ourselves somewhere around the year 1240 B.C., give or take, over 3,000 years ago. Now, I mention that for a particular reason, because on your sermon outline, I have it that when we go into this series, we are taking a journey into the Bible, a journey that takes us into the Old Testament, and it's a journey to a distant land that is so foreign to our understanding that it requires a degree of humility for us to get our bearings and and insight in order to be able to understand it, because it may, on the surface, appear to be so remote, and yet... As we study it, we find out it is, in fact, so relevant. In his excellent little book, uh, The Bible Jesus Read, and I'd encourage any of you to read that, Philip Yancey writes, he says, in a a personal story, he says, my brother who attended a Bible school uh, during a smart-alecky phase in his life enjoyed shocking groups of believers by sharing his life verse. After listening to others quote pious phrases from Proverbs or Romans or Ephesians, he would then stand and with a perfectly straight face recite 1 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 18. At Parbar, westward, four by the causeway, and two at Parbar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the rest of the students would screw up their faces and wonder what sort of deep spiritual insight that they were missing in that verse. In his sassiness, uh, Yancey writes, my brother had identified the two main barriers we have in reading the Old Testament. It doesn't always make sense to the modern reader, and what sense it does make often comes as an offense to the modern ear. Not, Not to all modern ears, mind you. One of the things that I discovered 
while teaching at the Acts Seminary uh, from students engaged in Bible translation around the world is that in places like Africa and Asia, they have found that people will respond immediately and intimately to the Old Testament, in fact, more profoundly than they do when they translate the New Testament. Why is that? Well, Nancy found the very same sort of discovery when he wrote, he says, it is stories in the Old Testament of land disputes and water rights and tribal feuds and, and, and savage warfare and arranged marriages, and they all relate directly into how those people are living right now. Those of us who, who live in developed countries who pick up the Old Testament and start reading may well feel boredom and confusion and maybe even outrage at the violence that is portrayed in it. Jesus we love, the Apostle Paul we get, but what of those barbaric people living in the Middle East 3,000 years ago? And yet it is still a critical part of God's story. Now one of the benefits of reading, of faithful preaching from the Bible is that I am forced to tackle subjects that I might otherwise avoid. As I have it on your outline, the journey is not only to a distant land, but it's to a hostile one as well. And rather than close my eyes, and I I, I need to open them wide and see the Bible as it really is. I love what Martin Buber, a theologian, wrote. He said, the man of today must read the Scriptures as though it was something utterly unfamiliar, as though I have never seen it before, set before him ready-made, but to come to it as a whole new world. And as Joshua presents such an an, an experience, I might as well confess it. Uh, For this is a book, if you read it closely and read it well, is a book that might offend you. It is a book of conquest and it is a book of war. And while we might find some wonderful texts like the story of Rahab's faith in chapter 2 and the stones of remembrance in chapter 4, those shine brightly and probably even more brightly because we hold them against a dark and bloody background of war and death conducted by Joshua. And there is enough in the 24 chapters of Joshua really to deserve an entire year's worth of study and teaching and discussion. I simply can't settle the issues in one shot this morning. But if I, if I have to have any integrity, I need to face this at the top. You see, when you read in Joshua, you will find that God was careful to point out that he was not arbitrarily bringing war to the Canaanites just to give the land to Israel. The wickedness of the inhabitants of Canaan was the reason why God had already given them ample warnings in the past. Just look at Sodom and Gomorrah for one of those ample warnings. And was finally now acting to remove them. It is one of the many indications in the Bible, as well as in real life today, that evil is real and that the devil exists and that wickedness does not flee at the snap of our fingers. It was the struggle with sin and the devil that took the Son of God to the cross. And while we may feel relieved, when this moment is over and when God's voice voice is spoken in much more gentle tones by the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord, the fact is 
that there is in our world a battle against evil and it is still ongoing. As we read in the book of Ephesians, our struggle is not with with flesh and blood, Canaanite tribes, the Ammonites, uh, or the Moabites, but we have an even greater foe. Our struggle is against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So even entering and opening this book, I have to ask the question, how are you doing in that battle? How, are you, how serious are you about the conquering of evil in your life and in your world? We read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, we need to know how to fight the good fight of faith and take hold of eternal life, the life to which we have been called by Jesus Christ our Lord. It's sincere and severe stuff we're dealing with here. And with that need to know, we can now look now at Joshua because he is a man who has taken hold of that severe calling. Or as I have it on your outline, he is a man of God's choosing. The first thing that we find is that he did not just pop up on the scene at this very moment. Surprise, I'm Joshua. He was, in fact, at this point in time, at the book of Joshua, when we open it, 80 years old. Having been born and lived as slave in Egypt for 40 years and having served with Moses for another 40 years in the wilderness, 80 years old at the very least, and now being called to serve by God for another 25 years. Can you imagine at 80 years being given such a monumental task? as to lead a nation in a a campaign like this for 25 years? To head an army, to confront seven nations, and to create a whole new nation. But even more than that, to keep it focused as a spiritual enterprise? (laughs) William Blakely described the burdens that were placed on the shoulders of this 80-year-old man. He writes this, he said, to conquer The country required the talent of a military commander to divide the country, the skill of political trigonometry, but to settle the nation in a higher sense, to create a moral affinity between them and their God, to turn their hearts to the covenant of their fathers, to wean them from their old idolatries and establish them in such habits of obedience and trust that that in doing the will of God would become to them a second nature. This was the difficulty given Joshua. <laughs> There's so much about the, a, a man like that that intrigues me. And reading his story through the, his internship with Moses is as if the Holy Spirit has assembled a basic theology of leadership. But the one thing that seems to define him as the man is a subtle verse in Numbers chapter 13, verse 16. There we read that originally... His name was Oshia, or Hosea, Oshia, which simply means salvation. But having spent time serving together with Moses, Moses changed his name to Joshua, which means more than just salvation. It means God is salvation. Joshua. Might I suggest that this change in name makes all of the difference in the world for his personality? He may have carried the name 
Hoshea in broad shoulders as a man, and you too may think yourself to be a man or a woman uh, strong enough and able enough to take on all comers and save the day. But when it comes to the battles that matter most, well, as we read in Ecclesiastes 9, the race does not come to the swift, nor does the battle necessarily belong to warriors, nor does bread to the wise, nor wealth to discerning. What is it that makes for a conqueror? In Romans we read, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not Hoshea, but he's Joshua. And the change of his name makes all of the difference. In fact, the New Testament makes it clear that Joshua is, in fact, a type of, Jesus, of, of Christ, a, the first Christian, as it were. In, a, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, the name Jesus in Greek is the equivalent to the Hebrew word Joshua. God is salvation. And I have to think that it was reflected in Joshua's name in a way that would serve to empower him and allowed him to take the word of God as it was given to him in, chan, in, in chapter 1 to heart. In chapter 1 of Joshua, verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, God says, I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Look at verse 6 in chapter 1 there. Be strong and courageous. In in verse 7, again, be strong and very courageous. And in verse 9, once again, be strong and courageous. That's where his strength lies. Hearing the word and living in the presence of God. We are engaged in a battle, in a battle with evil, and, and we are to fight the good fight. If we are to do it alone, we're doomed. But to be strong and courageous in Jesus Christ, we find ourselves to be more than conquerors. So we find a man of God's own choosing right here. Turning to Joshua, we also find a a, a place of God's own mission. Or as I have it on your outline, a place of God's choosing. In chapter 1, verse 2, God defines the mission given to Joshua. It says, Arise, cross the Jordan, you and all the people, to the land I am giving them to the sons of Israel. Now, the name of the land that we have here is the name Canaan. And as it appears in the Bible, it takes on more meaning than just a parcel of land or a piece of real estate or a location on a map. Canaan, in the Bible, becomes a metaphor to describe a believer's inheritance in Jesus Christ. Canaan is used as a metaphor to describe the ultimate gift of God given by God and claimed by faith and is the fulfillment of our promise. It becomes the environment in which we are to live. Now again, I don't have time to go into all the ways that the metaphor appears in the Bible, but what I find to be fascinating is that it isn't used as a picture of heaven elsewhere in the Bible. Instead, it is used as the place God has prepared and intends his people to live a life of blessing and rest right now. It's the place where you and I belong right now. That's how it's described in Hebrews chapter 4 and chapter 5. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest right now, today. Now, I know I'm starting to sound a little bit like 
Phil Yancey's brother, and some of you may be sitting there still wondering what a par bar is, but let me, let me <laughs> see if I can make this very simple. Hebrews makes it clear that as the children of Israel entered Canaan, they would become a picture of believers, of you and me, as we enter into a life of rest, which is a, a life of purpose and significance and meaning that we have found in Jesus Christ and now live with, with, a, with the Holy Spirit in victory. And, and now we live in the in-between, the middle ground, where slavery to sin stands behind us, and heaven is, 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 is there beyond us, but as we are now in the middle, we are living Canaan lives. We are living lives according to His leading and according to His promise, according to His presence, but they are lives that must be lived with diligence and fierce resolve. Why? Because evil is still an active force. Why? Because each and every morning, because evil is such an active force, we must rise up from our beds and then gird our loins for battle. Because temptation is a present reality and we live and must live with fierce vigilance. We must live Canaan lives where evil must be confronted and uprooted in each and every corner that we come to. And as a result, the book of Joshua becomes an example for our own lives and, and what is required of us to live the life that God intended us to live from the very beginning. Now, you can read the rest of the book for yourself. But as I said, this is going to be part of a study of an individual, and so I'm going to invite you to listen to the lessons that Joshua has learned for himself. And he speaks of those lessons in very simple ways at the end of the book, at the end of his life, as he transfers the mission that he's carried for, what, the 25 years then over to all the people. As he goes from being a a person of God's calling to commission a people to become a people of God's calling, and so I'm going to ask you to turn to chapter 24 as we come to the, to the focus of this whole thing. In chapter 24, verse 1, Joshua, we read, gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and they presented themselves before God. I just have to step back from there because it's, it, it's, that's a pretty remarkable transfer that takes place in that verse. Notice that Joshua may have been the one to mail out the invitations. Joshua called all the tribes. But, but from his leadership and from this time that he had led them, they knew that when they were responding, they were responding to something much bigger than Joshua, bigger than themselves. They were presenting themselves before God. Not Joshua, but God. This was going to be a God moment. You may read this as Joshua's last words then. And in fact, they are at least recorded in the scriptures. And last words are always worth listening to, especially as they tend to reveal life's deepest secrets. But this is so much more. This is a holy moment where all of God's people find, that, find out what really matters most. And so in this chapter, Joshua reveals three enduring truths that I would suggest we all must observe in order to live Canaan lives. Truth number one from verses 2 through 13. 
Joshua calls the people to keep their memory sharp and alive. In those verses, he holds out four memories, each of them a vital reminder uh, 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 that God did everything on their behalf. Their lives were were, were only due to, to his creative action, the product of his handiwork. Read through the 12 verses and you will find 21 verbs, all in the first person singular and all describing God's actions. I gave, we read. I sent. I brought. I delivered. When you read that, you realize that God did everything. And Joshua's great and driving point is that God has already proven himself active in their lives, and God has proven himself to be active in your life as well and is worthy of all praise. And that's what memory should reveal. If we were to honestly reflect on our own history, beneath all of the events, the names and the places, the drama and the suspense, I would suspect that we would find the same, that God was behind it all. He was there. He was active. He was faithful. He was true. I would suggest that this is why we celebrate uh, such things as the Lord's Supper. When we do it, we do it with a sharp and alive memory. We do it in remembrance of Him, seeing that God is behind it all, and we are encouraged then to trust Him with everything else before us, all the rest. And then in verse 14, Joshua takes a breath, and he confronts the people then with a choice of commitment. He says, now therefore, he says, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth, kind of reveals just his own character, sincerity and truth. And now it becomes time for commitment. Look at verse 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves whom you will then serve. You have a choice. Fear the Lord or find a replacement. But whatever it is, make up your mind. Make your commitment and keep it bold and fresh. What a powerful challenge not only in its logic in, in light of who God is, but in its credibility coming from the lips of Joshua. Because you see, he had spent his life making the right choices out of sincerity and out of truth. And he had lived out those choices with faith, and they all knew it. For more than a century now, as he's been with them, notice he's well in his hundreds at this point, he had walked the walk and had earned the right now to talk the talk. So he speaks to them with that sort of integrity. He says, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. And those words fell on Israel with the force of a hammer. And at the end of verse 18, with one voice, they say, we will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now let me suggest something here. You can think about commitment until your head hurts. But there comes a time when you just have to put your commitment into words. And when you do, you put yourself on the line. You just can't think about commitment. You have got to state it. And even then, there is something more. It is evident that Joshua was uneasy with their enthusiasm. Something about it must have sounded glib to him, impulsive to him. Because from verses 19 through 20, 
he challenges their commitment twice. His first challenge appears in verse 19. He says, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God and a jealous God. You can't do it, he's saying. To which then they respond in verse 21, no, 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 we will serve the Lord. And his second challenge comes in verse 22. You're going to be witnesses against yourselves. Which by implication says, you really don't know what you're agreeing to. Do you really want to become your own witnesses at a trial where you end up being convicted of being unfaithful? Do you really want to do that? Verse 22, they call back again, no, 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 we will be witnesses. They cry it and they took up responsibility for their actions. Challenging them like that added a critical note, and that is that commitment must be kept real and true. Now, I, I don't know, but I can imagine that there was a note of insistence in their voice and a note that must have pleased Joshua, a note that revealed a commitment that was more than just thought about, uh, intelligent, and, and it becomes deeper and deeper as it is spoken. I mean, listen to the details in verse 24. We will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. Each of the verbs there in their response are for the future and are then from the heart. We will, we will, we will. They are committing themselves to a lifestyle that will take them into the future. And with that then, Joshua says, okay, let's set up a memorial, a starting block as it were. Uh, And he writes this in stone, literally. And in verse 28, he sends his people on their way to fulfill their promise. So what do we learn from all this? Let me see if I can grab the lessons together. Is there evil in this world? You better believe it. It is a legacy that goes back far further than 3,000 years, but at least 3,000 years and even more, all the way back to Satan himself. Is there evil in this world? You better believe it. Can you beat it by yourself? Can, Can you find the strength to be able to sail your way through evil seas? No, and don't even try. Unless, as we read in Ephesians, you are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and are clothed in full armor. And then on the authority of God's word this morning, I simply add my voice to Joshua. Total commitment to him is the only way to live. It is simple as that. You must choose for yourselves whom you will serve. If you are not a Christian, you have a choice today. And if you choose Christ, eternity will, in fact, reveal it to be the greatest choice you could have ever made in life at large. And if you are a Christian, one who has made that profound commitment of belonging to Jesus Christ, then take this as your remembrance Your choice does not end at a distant moment in the past. You keep it alive each and every day. It's what the Apostle Paul calls our reasonable service of worship. So I end this sermon with asking the question, who will you serve? Who are you serving? And with that, take Joshua's words to heart. Chapter 24, verse 15, as for me and my house, 
We will serve the Lord. I'm going to ask you just to say that together with me. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Put it in personal terms. As for me, I will serve the Lord. As for me, I will serve the Lord. This is our daily credo. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess that having lived in an evil world, sometimes, Lord, we, we get so tired and, and, and seem to go along just to get along. And, and yet, Lord, we are living Canaan lives in, in between with heaven before us, with, with our past behind us, a past that has been forgiven, has been dealt with by Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd who comes behind us and sweeps up that mess that lies in the past. But now we live in the present, but we do so under the care of a, of a risen and resurrected Jesus Christ, a Savior, a Lord, who is with us to guide us, to strengthen us, to confirm us, to lead us, and Lord, in all ways, to strengthen us to his purposes. So in obedience to your command on our lives, uh, your, in obedience to your your claim upon us. We give ourselves to you now, and then, Lord, we give ourselves to you in each moment ahead. As for me, as for us, we will serve you in the powerful, wonderful name of the Lord who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ. Amen.